And welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Ah! Oh, that sounds like it needs some help. All right. Uh, I don't know whether I should call for help or uh, look for a cleric. Nonetheless, hey, I'm Randy. Only if he's got a pouch filled with Ricola. All right. Ricola. I see where you're going with that. <laughs> and you are Mike. I am what? allegedly Mike. Allegedly. Expect no less from the distracted beholder of gaming podcasts. Ten eyes didn't see a thing. Yeah. (laughs) What? Huh? I don't know. I didn't witness a thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Nobody's buying it. Yeah, so welcome once again to our lovely little podcast here in the collected corner of the interwebs. Hey, it's uh, it's a nice day out and uh, we hope you're having a great one as well. Gonna get right into this. We have a call in. Last week we talked about a traveler module. We're starting the spinward marches uh, with the first of those, the high and dry adventures. So, yeah, yeah. we'll soon see more of those from uh, the fine folks at, uh, I believe that was Mongoose Publishing. Yep. And I'm looking forward to it very much. Yeah, I hope some of our friends out there that uh, do pot- traveler podcasts are taking note of that because, you know, I think traveler needs more attention than the podcast. I mean, I know it's getting fashionable now to kind of poo-poo on Dungeons and Dragons, but hey, you know, yeah, there are other RPGs out there, and definitely we're going to continue with our coverage of Dungeons and Dragons, just like we're doing this episode, which is uh, Spelljammer. Yeah, yeah, I know the arguries are sometimes fickle things, and uh, well, all right, so uh, I I got a bad batch of sheep guts, and after fondling them, the augury was incorrect. Yeah, uh, we. We may not have thought it all the way through to have two back-to-back episodes of, hey, spoil alerts. Uh, yeah, I know we're going to be talking about The Haunting, something that's been out for over 30 years, but, you uh, know... With the with... resurgence in popularity for Call of Cthulhu, there's, you know, I, I gotta say, there is something to be said for maybe uh, putting some space between peeling back the veil. Uh, there are just a lot of people making use of Call of Cthulhu material these days. So, yay. yeah, the new the new box set uh, or new, I should say, they're reprinting the first edition box set. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, we live in a golden age. Yeah, I know. You know, I I had it, and sometimes I like I get a little wispy eyed, but like, oh, that was a really good box set, and you know, I like the Arkham map, and but you know what, the seventh edition is great too, and uh, I got no complaints. I, you know what, it, it's a nice compromise but uh i think uh next week for the augury we will be talking about stormbringer yeah some heavy metal gaming coming your way next week so hey stormbringer friends that's what's in store for you so join us as we hit another chaosium finally yeah i mean and it's one of my like personal favorite chaosium products uh you know a game that uh honestly totally underrated during its initial release period you know just really did not get the acclaim it so very deserved uh i enjoyed playing it back then and i'm looking forward to covering it now oh yeah i mean so join us next week when we cover take a deep delve into the young kingdoms and stormbringer the role-playing game in its four incarnations so that's for next week so yeah uh our augury will be a little off this week. So, yeah, we're talking about Spelljammer. Yeah, we've been talking about Spelljammer. What are you going to cover? Well, guess what? Here we are. But before we get into that, we got a call in from Joe Richter. Joe Richter giving us a call. Joey. Let us know what's going on. So, take it away, Joe. 
you dudes are knocking it out of the park lately. Love the Birthright episode. Birthright is probably my favorite D&D setting, like official setting. Uh, I think it is. I, I haven't played in it much, but I've read more about it and I love it. Yeah, normally I, I'm a I'm a homebrew dude, but I don't know. That was awesome. I'm glad that you guys did it. That made me love Birthright even more. So hooray for you two. <laughs> Take it easy. Peace out. Oh, hey, thanks a lot, Joe. The kind words, man. Kind words come from you. That was uh, means a lot. Glad we're hitting it. Yeah, glad uh, we're hitting it out of the park for you. We're trying some to keep it more focused, and I guess. Uh, Let's ramshackle, is a word. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we are doing a little bit more research these days. Uh, you know, we often bragged in the early episodes that uh, <laughs> preparation, what's that? Uh, <laughs> the only preparation we got is H. <laughs> uh, well. For the, the uh, twin hemorrhoids of gaming podcast. Yeah. Well, that, that would describe us. But as it turned out, um, you know, it's not such a terrible thing to do a little homework before we do a show. Uh, I think we've, we've settled into admitting that, hey, you know what, we could do, there are some subjects that we know so well that we don't need to do any, any precursor studies. Uh, but for some of these, we have taken some, some time out and prepared ourselves ahead of time uh, to have a better feel for like okay what are the what are the real core topics we want to hit on this uh, and I, I feel flattered that I think people noticed the the extra effort going in on some of these uh, you know setting analyses well you know it it also comes down to looking at what works and what does not work and some things you have to try out and we kind of went especially last year was a period of for a lot of us, I probably shouldn't have to tell you why, but we were all, all pretty well uncertain where things were going to go. Oh, yeah. Months of, you know, sitting there on tenterhooks wondering, you know, like, how is this all going to pan out? You know, I had so much confusion and chaos sown last year. Uh, and now it's exciting to see people hitting the gaming tables once again. Ah. Oh. Ah. Oh. oh, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely better. To be gaming in person, I think, but, you know, some people, that is, their preferred method is playing online. I might have to continue that for a little bit more on my uh, Saturday group, so, hmm. for a while yet, but we'll see. Anyway, you folks showed up for a show, and we're going to deliver one for you. So we're talking about Spelljammer, and oh boy, hmm. uh, back in the day, 1989, Spelljammer came out, and people were... Well, two minds about it. People either really hated it or they liked it. it I'm was... going to come clean and admit that this was not my favorite game, which I, I believe we have mentioned in the past that I am, of the two of us, uh, the one who has the least Spelljammer experience except for a few attempts to play. For me, personally, not analytically, not you know critically, personally, I playing Spelljammer always felt like like wearing a borrowed suit. Mm. Okay, the fit was never quite right. It just didn't work for me. Um, All right. Well, we'll get into that in a bit. But first, we're going to cover some groundwork here. It was one of TSR's first settings for the second edition game, 
And legend has it that it was done as a little bit of a joke as a way to pay for their Christmas party. <laughs> that they all put a little bit of uh, time into it and uh, got it under a cover. But by the time that they were ready to announce this as some kind of new campaign setting, it kind of caught on and kind of became a formula for further releases in TSR uh, for their campaign. Basically, every two years, they'd unveil a new campaign. Well, uh, yeah, there was an era in which uh, there was so much emphasis on new campaign, new campaign, new campaign. Every year, you know, or, uh, they were pushing hard to have new material out there at, as often as they could. Admirable. Admirable, but really difficult to sustain. And yeah, so here comes this campaign where you're taking your AD&D characters into space. And for a lot of people, that was a big no-no. I mean, as much as guns are still a divisive topic at some tables, this was right out of that age where, like, going into space was bad. And we were going to go right to the first edition DM's Guide where, you know, you can have anything. Happening yeah. in your campaign where he says you could it's possible you could fly a rock to the moon if you so chose or canonically, I mean, Spelljammer made sense in the D and D sense because uh fusions of settings, fusions of genres were directly encouraged. Okay, uh, that was always a facet of D and D. Uh and to take a stance that here's this game that is in explicitly encouraged fusions of genres, but it didn't mention this, so therefore that shouldn't be done. Uh, that is the most ludicrous thing I have ever heard suggested. I, <laughs> just, um, <laughs> okay, whatever you do, you know, don't make any leaps of logic uh, using the ideas that they have put forward for you for other circumstances. Uh, their job was not to list everything in the most literal possible sense, and then you were not to ever do anything beyond that scope. Uh, the, the DM's guide and other materials made it clear that they were encouraging creativity, they were encouraging mashups, uh, and indeed, other games all over the gaming scene of the time were doing mashups and combos. Yeah, Space 1889 was coming out at that time. Very Jules Verne. Uh, yeah, and so here you have another one that was kind of a nod to the steampunk, but this one used and uh, Ptolemaic yeah, uh, uh, science. Referencing the the Egyptian era of oh, Ptolemy. Ptolemy uh, the Elder. And <laughs> uh, a lot He envisioned of the, that there was a, in outer space was a very different atmosphere and that you know, here was this, uh, we weren't really paying attention to Newtonian physics, but we were paying attention to metamagical physics. And that's, it was very consistent with that, that ships would bring air with them when they left the envelope of a planet. Yeah, this was done by, like, if a ship is granted a spell jamming helm, uh, you know, if the helm of the ship is a special spell jamming helm, then you had gravity and atmosphere and your ship could take off and not merely fly, but also travel into space, to from universe to universe, from star to star. Yeah, and rather than being giant clamshells, flying saucers, or things like that, the ships were transformed out of galleons and even fantastical beasts and fish and other things that seemed to be more accustomed to being in an atmosphere where no or an area where there's no up or downs per se. So 
it used a lot of things that were familiar, but at the same time very strange. The ability to fly by using a spell jammer, a helm of power or magic item that once a spell user, whether magic user or cleric or druid, sat upon, they could then make the ship move as they willed. And at the cost of taking that spellcaster's allotted spell power for that day. Um, so it is a bit of a trade-off. You know, you can have your highest level magic user do it, or, and then you are bereft of their spells. But in the meantime, the supposed magic user is sitting there in control of the ship and able to feel and see through it. But anyway, uh, however they did it, it worked very well, and... It did have a very divisive element inside the role-playing game community, specifically the D&D community at the time. Either people loved it or they hated it, or were kind of in various shades of that. I mean, I come out very hard on it because I felt it was very imaginative and bold, and it had a lot of imagination. But it did seem to fall flat, and this is where we're going to get into covering part of that. When it was released in 89, it was a... Still somewhat controversial. It took a little bit for it to gain some speed, but people started seeing what this was packed with. It came with quality color sheets that had deck plans of the ship. It had two books, one for the rules of playing in the game of Universe and Adventures in Space, and the other one detailing areas and new races. And predominantly, we come to find that the Beholders and the Mind Players factor very, bit of, very prominently in this setting. As well as the elves. A-holes are everywhere. And new races like the Niyogi, who use um, living souls to power their ships. Through oh, space. that's just me. Yeah, and they have Umberhulks as their bonded kin. Kind of think like Skaven crossed with nasty wolf spiders, and you would not be far from the uh, Niyogi. And yep. then you have uh, some other races, the Drakatar and some the, uh, the Arcane, which we would later see return as the Murkane, magical merchants of planar nature. This time they were in an interstellar setting. Large blue giants that seem to have a almost a hive mind with one another, the ability to find any item that a buyer wished of them for, of course, a very pretty price. But D &D, Giant blue D&D Ferengi. Yep. Well, they weren't as, as quite as... No, not as avaricious as all. Yeah, as avaricious. But they were... Nobody really trusted them. And then they had a setting called uh, the Rock of Brow, a large asteroid out in the middle of the dis diaspora of the whatever game world you wanted to put it in, whether it was your own homebrew or whether it was one of the existing ones. Because this was the meta arc that sometimes was a selling point and sometimes was very controversial for some DMs. It combined Greyhawk, the Forgotten Realms, and Dragonlance all in one, under one hood. You could visit all three. I want to stop for a minute on that note and mention that, like, even though I was not the game's greatest fan, this is the thing that I do like about it. The ambitious nature of what was intended here, okay? Uh, it, there were two things that obviously had occurred to people before. You know, before this was released, it had occurred to people, well, what if my characters went from this world to that world? Yeah, in and, Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk, you know, they talked about cross... In, yeah, now, in, in all of those circumstances, you know, it was like, oh, powerful magic is used to travel from one place to another. Right. But we didn't get into heavy detail. Uh, this campaign setting, uh, this major structural alteration of the game universe, uh, 
included a very specific, like, okay, by a spell jamming ship, one can travel from this setting to that setting. Hey, you want to go to Dark Sun with your regular characters? Hey, welcome to it. No, you can, well, that, that, that was true. They did keep Dark Sun and uh, Mistara off the, the chart. They yeah. were not but, there, but... Yeah, but players can do what players want. You know, the DM's, DM's going to let you gonna go there. He's going to let you go there. Yeah, the DM makes the decision here. But Ravenloft was on the table. Uh, well, yeah, that was a planner one as well, but yeah. They, uh, they opened the door to inter-campaign events uh, by creating this setting that finally had an explanation uh, and implied that all places were loosely connected or existed side by side to one degree or another. Uh, there was, you know, as contentious as that may have been to some people, I still think it was this really ambitious mm -hmm. concept. And the second thing that was a strong selling point, high-level characters uh, can get boring. Okay? And we've discussed that in some of the high-level campaign uh discussions we had in early episodes yep. that you know raising the bar okay it, it becomes tiresome for the dm it is a job of work you have to keep raising the bar higher and higher making it tougher and tougher and throwing new challenges at your players for a very long period of time well players love their high level characters and here was a setting that said hey Here's a whole bunch of brand new things. Literally a, you know, universe populated with stuff that you have not yet encountered, not yet dealt with, some of which is very high-powered. Uh, it honestly opened the door for activities for very high-level players that could be challenging again. So, hey, whether it was a good fit for me or not, Still going to come down in favor of saying it was a really ambitious, thoughtful, uh, useful product. Yeah, the phlogistian between oh, the crystal spheres. Yes. Each the, of the your phlogiston. The each of the crystal spheres encompassed a campaign world, so to speak. It's various planets and the sun, and of course, it didn't have to go to solar mechanics as we understand them or Newtonian physics. It could go by anything. The sun could be revolving around a central main world it could be yeah you could have a you know heliocentric universe if you yeah chose. and it's whatever your imagination can come up with really and inside that crystal sphere those laws of physics if you will like in dragon lance that were different that made that campaign different took place here and once outside of that crystal sphere you entered into the wild space which was the phlogistian which was this very flammable matter in between the crystal spheres which you had to travel and navigate through and those charts could be very hard to get which gave the game or the setting i should say a great age of sail feel to it that you had to talk with old spacers and long or navigators from long ago consulting charts to be able to make these long journeys to perilous areas and also it came up with a system much like the traveler game where you could generate your own uh Crystal Spear very quickly, but uh, they would later come up with supplements that would help with that, naturally, but... Yes, uh, this was a failing of the initial release, okay? Uh, so here you have this fabulous new setting concept uh, with so many interlinked places. Uh, 
And yeah, sure, you can go home, but there wasn't really a home base, like an interzone, uh, like a, a middle, you know, uh, meeting ground uh, out there in the greater multiverse. Yeah, they put... And they eventually added that. In the original game book, they gave the Rock of Brawl, which had a heavy arcane presence, as well as uh, emissaries for the elf and armada. And a dwarven citadel floating out there, you know, harvesting all the ore from, interesting ore from the asteroids and all that. As well as, uh, you know, the illithid emissaries, which nobody really likes hanging around for a long <laughs> period of time. You get headaches, nosebleeds, and, you know, a couple of your crew members go missing. You don't remember, have, you have fuzzy memories of what transpired. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, uh, like, uh. Being an ambassador, <laughs> the ambassador's quarters next door, they're always getting nosebleeds and headaches and everybody drops off and quits the job. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the illithids, that's that's them for you. Yeah, and that was the big kind of thing was that you also had this kind of ambiguity. Like Normally, if you encountered an illithid, you would be ready to start rolling for initiative. Here... You know, the illicit definitely are out, they're not very friendly, and they're out to get you, but uh, they also have interests in mind. They are a lawful and highly organized species, and they can definitely see the benefit of cooperation from time to time, as long as they're the ones calling the shots. Yeah, still psychotically egotistical, uh, but not, well, you know, they're not stupid evil. Yeah. Okay, they're ridiculous. Ridiculously smart. So smart that they often overestimate uh, their own, you know, Yes, very, yeah. But uh, <laughs> they're also smart enough to see ways to gain from circumstances that might involve... There are a few of them, exist. and they use many slaves that are yeah. mind-controlled to pilot their ships because they don't like sunlight. <laughs> and a place that is perpetually sunlit, yes, they, they have to... Yes, the, the phlogiston is... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that they can move around in, but in a crystal sphere with a, uh, a large sun, no, they don't, do not like that at all. Um, but here it is, um, that you could deal with these creatures, even beholders. And it wasn't made so it was like a Deep Space Nine, but more or less a uneasy alliance of trade and negotiation and necessity. Because the beholders are very far and few between, thankfully. And their vessels, although scary to meet a whole crew of beholders, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as that is, um, it was pretty rare to encounter them. And also you had different types of dragons in space. And so the setting did have a certain appeal all on its own. And as we talk it up... One of the things that Mike points out is that it was almost too big to be contained in one box. Despite all the stuff they gave you, they gave you this fantastic ship-to-ship combat system using ballista catapults, even though, you know, that has nothing to do with the way space would work. You just gave it up and just kind of said, look, this is kind of just the nature of the beast. You just got to suspend your disbelief. Hey, um, you know, when's the last time you saw a dragon walking down Main Street? Uh, yeah, I know, you know, I know. Uh, you've got to embrace your inner fantastic. And this is something that has always... Uh, this is not a new contentious issue, okay? In gaming, there have always been those who get into the debate. Uh, and it's a fun one, okay? I admit, yeah, it's not one day, that's going to cause... This is nerd... 
uh, white knuckles and clenched jaws. This is Nerdvana. You know, we've been debating, oh, I don't think that's very realistic. Dude, you're playing a dude with pointy little ears who casts spells. <laughs> I think you left realistic at the bus stop 20 miles back. <laughs> oh, shit. I mean, yeah, that's, that's where you're at. But also, you know... You... I hate unrealism in my Magic Elf game. <laughs> but you got kind of this age of sale, piracy, buccaneering, SWAT. I want to say swashbuckling because going from ship to ship could be dangerous. But hey, you know, whatever it took. There was a strong sense of nautical adventure in this, along with kind of the groove of Star Trek that was going on at the time. The next generation was pretty popular back then. You got kind of a feel for exploration besides just conquest and pillage. Yeah, that was another good tie-in. Well, well done dude that that's actually a, a facet of it is that uh, you know considering where you know popular culture and science fiction television and shows were going at the time you know this was a a smart campaign setting to include because it opened the door again to uh, harvesting a lot of concepts from popular science fiction uh, and even like historic space pulp fiction mm-hmm. uh, and Bringing them to your game table for D&D. Yeah, Crystal Spear with a megalomaniacal leader, a ruler who controls all the worlds under his grasp. Well, you know, I I don't know where I've heard that before, but... Yeah. I think he was a merciless guy. (laughs) Ah, yes. Ah, Ming and his fabulous dynasty. Ah. Ah. But well worth it, okay? I mean, bringing a little of the uh, Flash Gordon pulp and uh, Space 1889 and, uh, you know, little whiffs of Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, You could pull from the things that inspired you. And here was a setting that was very open to having those things fused into it. Uh, It just literally cried out for that kind of stuff. So... It, I'm not saying that a creative person could not have done it without this ever being released, but a great many people wouldn't have thought to. And or would have been afraid they didn't know where to start. And this yeah. gave you a good basis to go yeah. by. Instead of the big conversion process, like, oh man, i, I got to script this whole thing out from scratch. Oh, bam! The setting is complete. All yeah, you've got, got a ship-to-ship ship combat system, you've got a way to travel, you've got the so-called laws of space or wild space spelled out for you, how to travel, how long it takes, and how to maneuver between the crystal spheres. This is all important, and it's already done, so the rest is up to you. And, yeah, they came up with a lot of stuff. They came up with small uh, splat books for realm space, gray space, and uh, crin space, which unfortunately let Kender out in the wider universe, but that's a tragedy all on its own. We won't speak about that. <laughs> Kill it. Kill it with fire. Yeah. Look it for more of it. It's the only way to be sure. Drown them. It'll be over soon. But, all right, so we covered a lot of the physics. Yeah, air and water are, of course, important as is food. But that was also during the Age of Sail. That was a big thing back then as well. But, hey, as long as you have a spellcaster, you can keep that ship going forever. So, so as I get spells, they're sitting there butt on that uh, spelljammer helm. Now... Getting into the nitty-gritty, the name Spelljammer itself doesn't just include the way of conveyance. It actually alludes to a greater artifact that is kind of a meta 
arc that goes through the entire game. The Spelljammer itself was this huge ship, a literal living ship that fired spheres of annihilation. <laughs> and everybody wanted to get their hands on the helm that controlled it. And that was a great meta arc that, unfortunately, and here's one of the detractions, that they novelized and decided to make that into a series of novels. Highlighting each one of the Crystal Spears, except for Greyhawk, for some strange reason. Although they made a stop off there. And that's where you found out the Rock of Raw was based in the Grey Space. But I digress. So yeah, they uh, placed this great meta arc in the midst of this campaign setting. And then proceeded to narrate it to its conclusion. Now, the books, some people really like them. Uh, I only read a first of them, but I thought the first one was kind of cool. Because it introduced the GIF, which, you know, these uh, militant hippopotami. Hippopotami? Oh. Hippopotamus misses Hippopotami. <laughs> yeah, these great big hippos. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Who carry guns <laughs> and dress in these ostentious military uniforms. And presumably speak in great British accents. <laughs> oh, how fitting. Yeah. And, you know, they prefer gunpowder, so... They really, really like gunpowder. <laughs> it goes boom. Yeah. And if it blows up, so much the better. <laughs> so they were there. And so, yeah, they're an interesting race in and of themselves. But uh, nonetheless, it uh, kind of took the mystery out of the whole setting. I mean, it's kind of like letting all the air out in the room when you do something like that, where you put it into a narrative context of novels and... You know, yeah, well, maybe interesting reading. What about the rest of the campaign? Well, you can make your own. You know, at the end, it resets itself. Yeah, but now everybody knows the secrets or presumes to know the secrets. And there you go. This is the problem with a lot of the novelization of that time at TSR. Yes, there were. And yeah, this is a worthy point that I really wanted to touch on in this episode. That uh, this was a widespread critical mass failure level event throughout TSR's entire series of product lines, uh, the respect and affection they had for their publishing arms, uh, for their fiction creators, uh, was not unmerited, okay? These were very popular books that they were releasing at the time. A number of authors just kept generating, you know, best-selling books. Uh, the, the store shelves throughout the nation uh, had... You know, you literally couldn't go to a major city uh, bookstore and not find D&D books, uh, especially the novelizations. Now, where did the terrible mistake happen? Uh, really early on, there was a link in the, the perceived role of the books versus the perceived role of the game. A, a link between the two. Like, if we do this thing in the books, we totally have to do that thing in the game. You know, the, the, the yep. next game book should totally reflect the changes we have made based on this very popular book, because obviously people liked it or it wouldn't be a bestseller. Uh, that crippling idiocy devastated campaign setting after campaign setting. Yeah, they slowly got it right with Planescape, which is tangentially related to Spelljammer, but we'll finish that up in a bit. Yeah, that that's, you know, another discourse, but... Uh, this turned out to backfire uh, throughout the entire second edition era of D&D. &D. Dark Sun. They were, 
yeah, as they were growing towards the close of their success, the, the period where they began to contract as an empire, uh, and eventually Wizards of the Coast came in and bailed them out and took over, uh, you can almost watch like the, the series of like almost identical mistakes done with every campaign setting that somebody had created. Like, hey, let's you know alter this in accordance with the book that got a bestseller thing. Well, look, bestseller status. When you have a publishing branch that puts like you know ten books into the hands of every single bookstore, uh, every major bookstore chain in the United States. Just by releasing a book, it automatically becomes a bestseller. That does not tell you that gamers actually like it. And, you know, it does put money in your pockets, but it doesn't tell you what gamers like. And that's where the disconnect happened. It really took mm-hmm. hold. And here's this terrific campaign setting that, you know, some neat stuff happened in a book. And then people did did not feel good about what happened in the book is now the law. Uh, that was not a good choice on their part in yep. any of their campaigns. And I think, like, for the moment, and and welcome to failing your savings throw. Oh. Or you have failed oh. your saving throw and are now held oh. into the gaze, the eldritch gaze of the arcane eye, oh. where you are forced to look at small RPG projects, independent games, and blogs and podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Frankenstein's RPG podcast and this is by dave patterson and if you're not listening to frankenstein's rpg podcast well you should shame on you for not listening to this no (laughs) it's a small podcast it's just getting started so if you get some time and you feel the need to listen to somebody more coherent and less rambly than us i would suggest frankenstein's rpg made from Oh, yeah, it was actually stitched together from the parts of multiple slain RPGs. I heard they got stuck with an abnormal brain, though. Oh, yeah. Well, at least they didn't get stuck with the fatal system. (laughs) Ooh, too soon? Oh, too soon. Too soon. No, not really. (laughs) Right, but Dave Patterson does a fine job having guests on and talking. And, of course, looking on the Switch to see if it lives. (laughs) Life. Give my creation life! <laughs> so yeah, we highly recommend you bend your ear or your uh, podcast uh, time and give good old Frankenstein's RPG podcast a listen. You'll... It's been recommended by Frau Bluka. Oh yeah? <laughs> no. <I'll... laughs> we don't ask about those things. Frau Blue. All right, but... We return you back to your normal reality, and where we're talking about one of the things I think that the Spelljammer campaign did really well was doing things like the Aster Mundy Cluster, which was a campaign they released towards the tail end, which gave its own unique area to play in, rather than depending on the realms or Greyhawk or Kryn space. And this is precisely what I mentioned earlier, which was uh, providing players with an external home base, like a, yep. a place of operations where they could play consistently instead of go forth, return, go forth, return. Uh, you could be in the Spelljammer setting the whole time. Uh, yeah, rather than as a, a partition. Good addendum. I, I thought that was a quality product move on their part. Yeah, they came out with uh, five good adventures for it. All of which were pretty uh, extensive. You know, that broke up the play between uh, 
being time on the ship and exploring new areas as well as fighting other ships or just landing on planets and fighting other things, angry things on the planets. Well, interacting with beings. That's what you call it? I call it getting experience points. (laughs) Fly me closer so I can hit it with my sword. Exactly. Or cast a spell at it. (laughs) And this is where I think Spelljammer really shone, but it took a while because I think the big attraction was, just like we said, right off the bat, you had this major need to go and explore every campaign world. I mean, you could finally go, I want to go to Dragon Alliance. I want to meet a Knight of Salamnia and shake his hand. Really? I'm sure. No, no, I'm going to totally sell uh, steel pieces to them because, you know, gold's pretty common there, and I'm going to buy up all their gold and take it back to (laughs) the Forgotten Realms. And Yeah, that happened. Uh, But right, uh, they were kind of confused when there's... All their gold changed to steel when they left, and I was like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. now this is how we handle currency manipulators in D&D. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, yeah, good old D&D has long provided the DM with several treasure-eating monsters. That's right, and that was not, and that was another not thing, was the gold bug was one of them. Yeah. Beanfolio, thank you so much. <laughs> no, I'm just going to count my gold pieces. Oh, it's, you suddenly get bitten and are now paralyzed as it goes inside. It crawls up inside your hand and then eats its way to your heart. Oh! Gold bug! <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Cruel irony monsters. One of the specialties of D&D. But um, it, there were certain unique challenges that... Uh, DMs did have to be thoughtful about when intersecting campaign settings, okay? that it, I'm not saying that it was all done for you. Sometimes you had to exercise your own discretion. Uh, it's one of the things that I think intimidated me enough that I never dared to DM it. Yeah. I it, did it, not. That's another thing I heard a lot is people were a little intimidated, like you wouldn't know where to start, and I think that springs off of option paralysis. There's just so much that it's hard to focus on. And that's why I think maybe in hindsight, having like the Aster Mundi cluster released very close to the initial release of it. Yeah. yeah, It would have been to there. It would have helped a lot of DMs get started on either doing a complete spell jammer campaign or you start out as deck hands aboard a ship and then graduate eventually as commanding officers. Swabbing the space deck. Yep. And then (laughs) giving the space dust off the hull. Scraping the star barnacles off the side. <laughs> yeah, it'd be all crusty and stuff. But hey, uh, after the great white radiant dragon. <laughs> yeah, that, that could do it. Um, but yeah, you could have a complete spell jammer campaign rather than like, okay, we're, we hit 12th level now, what we're bored with our campaign. Well, take this spell jammer and go into space and have fun. Rather than do that, you know, this is, you could do. I still think that's a fun way to do it, but I think like where really the joy of an Age of Sail game is when you're really in the sea, when you start off that way. And having that where your characters are completely used to going to new places and wanting to see different sites, you know, this is a great way to shake it up. One minute you could be dirt side, 
visiting the locals because your ship looks like a normal ship, although a little bit more ostentatious on the seas, because they can a lot of these ships could also ply the seas normally, and so you would seem just like a normal traveler from a far land with strange customs to many of the normal folk, and explore a few dungeons if you want, or just completely go off the rails and find a dark, deserted hulk drifting in wild space full of dangerous race and boy you could just have as much fun there too but the idea was is that you wanted to have with as far as dms go a good frame of reference and to be honest since it was such a new idea there wasn't a lot to really latch on to and sure now we're a number of years later we can look back and say well i should have done this with a wave waving finger in the air i think it's also uh time to just put it straight there it was bright just say it it was just brand new and it was just almost too novel of an idea for everybody to take in it was a lot to digest let's be honest uh, admittedly so this was the ambitious and large-scale uh, nature of spelljammer just meant that there's no way around that one tidbit okay it is big it is a big concept and there is no way to make it less so. so right. I, that's not, that is neither praise nor curse, okay? That is simply a thing that is so. Uh, it's not meant to detract from it. But I still think they did a very good job of threading the needle and working their way mm -hmm. to a viable product and getting material on the table. Now, who knows? Uh, had this not emerged, you know, fairly close to the end of that golden age of, uh, you know, second edition gaming. I honestly think it, it could have gone on a lot longer. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it, the critical, critical mistakes were being made in other areas at that time that ultimately led to, you know, TSR shifting their focus inward and, you know, withdraw, withdraw. You know, we, we've got a all hands on deck. Yeah, they, breach. yeah, they had to. They had to keep a a careful hand at it because they'd expanded themselves. I mean, right after Spelljammer was Ravenloft, then Dark Sun, and then further on down the road there was uh, Planescape, which pretty much that's where uh, Spelljammer really came to an end. They had a couple plans for a large campaign called The Heart of the Enemy, but we never really got to see that. There was also the uh, Space Bears handbook, complete handbook with those old splat books, like with the fight, complete fighter's guide and cleric's compendium and all that. And uh, there were a couple good ones with like Wild Space, I, which I which was the introductory module for me. I liked Wild Space a lot. It was uh, it was a pretty wild good way to space. yeah Wild Space. It's kind of like you could just see Eddie Van Halen just writing the uh, theme <laughs> for that and drumming it out on his guitar and uh, keyboard. But yeah, so. When it did come to an end, uh, it died with a whimper, unfortunately, and it went to, um, it kind of transitioned a lot to uh, Planescape, too, which Planescape provided this game, it conversely, started with a very strong place to play, Sigil, a kind of... The uh, city of Sigil, the, the Tanalorn of... Uh... Oh, yeah, well, a Dickinson, Dickinsonian city, to be sure, um, 
Oliver Twist would be very happy growing up there. Um, well, no, he wasn't happy growing up in any place like that. But yeah, kind of this weird, almost uh, turn of the century type of eighteen hundred centuries. East, we're that old. Where turn of century doesn't mean what it used to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Turn of century. Oh, you mean like uh, you know, when AOL, you know, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. No, no, not the turn of that century. Yeah, we're talking about the eighteen hundreds, but yeah, it kind of had this gloom, uh, slummy, post-industrial uh, hive city thing going on, and the Lady of Pain, like something they did not novelize out of the mis- the mystery and mis- uh, the core setting out of. They did eventually, I guess, kind of try to kill her, and then she comes back, but no one really knows what she's all about. So, yeah, Planescape did uh, kind of take over from where Spelljammer left off and into the displaying what, uh, the, the complete possibilities of the material plane. Now it went and complete, explored the metaphysical realms of the outer planes. So, hey, you know, it is what it is, and it was a damn fine setting. I think uh, we didn't appreciate what we had at the time. But also, I think that's a little unfair because to blame everybody for not jumping on it because it was a lot to take in and there wasn't much that you could really use as a predecessor to kind of hook people in. You know, it's kind of like this one thing <laughs> that I can't really explain without it sounding like I'm having a mental collapse. So I'm going to use allegory. Okay, I'm in. So it's like steampunk kind of... Sh- it's Fish like, ships running around in space. Uh, it, it's kind of like trying to explain rock and rye to you know, by Fago. Oh to yeah, anyone who is not from Michigan. Well, what's it taste like? Ah, uh, oh yeah. Uh, you can't. You can't really put it down, put that down on a piece of paper and slip it under a note. You know. Yeah, there is no explanation you can adequately give. It's like than, uh, I'll send you one here. Just and then people are like, wow, that's really unique. Yeah, there's nothing quite like that. It, it's one of a kind. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, there, so, Spelljammer had that going for it. It was both a blessing and a curse. There was nothing you could really compare it to at that time. There was a truly accurate comparison. So many elements fused together into one uh, campaign setting. Makes it really hard to pin down. And... Again, it made it somewhat difficult to wrap your head around as a creative, as a DM. Uh, however, if you were inspired by it, it's not like it wasn't a good vehicle to, you know, take your inspirations and, you know, move them into this setting. Uh, I did admire that about it. Yeah, and you can find most of the box that's still sitting around. And if you do manage to find a few of them, open one up and, hey, it doesn't matter what edition you're playing, just scratch off a few of the serial numbers and just go with the concept. Yeah. Your players will never know. <laughs> you know, they're like, wow, this is really great stuff. Yeah, I come up with it all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, they'll, they'll figure it out but soon enough. But at the same time, and you might enjoy it. And you might also find the ability to cast your net a little wider than you thought before and bring in some more good adventure ideas. 
especially since we've had a couple years since that uh, <laughs> decades to digest that. I think that a couple people have also come up with some ideas like uh, there was Dragon Mech, I think, which was an interesting one. That was for third edition. Ah, uh, yes. And then there was Dragon Star, which was a complete science fiction fantasy overlap. Not so much done with uh, science fantasy, but actually more science fiction with D&D. So. Not too shabby. I mean, yep. it was a worthy attempt. Yeah, and so those came out of it. And I think that uh, if you also are interested in somewhat more of a science fiction grounded one, look up uh, Dragon Star or get Dragon Mech. Uh, which it was also quite interesting. So, yeah, giant. Because uh, never let anybody tell you, oh, gamers hate it when genres mash up. Yeah, I know. Like, no, no. What do you mean, like, look, if giant really, really golems fighting it. each other, piloted by their singularly trained, masterful pirate monk, uh, pilot monks? <laughs> yeah, a golem monk. Go think about that for a while and come back to me. Yeah. If you if that doesn't give you a couple ideas, then hey, I'm. Yeah, that it, it's a thing. <laughs> so that just happened. <laughs> so, all right. Well, we definitely appreciate hearing from you folks. So, uh, thanks, Joe, for calling in, and of course, keep up the encouragement. We did a great job with uh, Birthright. A lot of people seem to like that. So, hey, hope you like this one as well. And again, let us know what you. Want to see coming up in, either on our Facebook page or in the comments on our Twitter. Just get a hold of us there. You can direct messages if you want. Or uh, on our Facebook page, just send a private message if you want to. But we appreciate all the support, and you guys have been really great in coming out. So we feel really good about this new year. And uh, thanks to you folks, you're making it possible. Making the dream come alive. All right. So, until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.